they can figure anything out, and they can develop some of those intangible skills that we need great salespeople, great sales leaders, great leaders at all levels to have. If they're not intellectually curious, game over. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady, the president of Sales Assembly and your host. And I want to do a quick shout out to our incredible sponsors for Taking the Lead, Showpad, Vidyard, and Motion. Showpad is your all-in resource for content and any training needs that your teams may need. Check them out at Showpad. You will not regret it. Additionally, our next sponsor is Vidyard. Video is taking off, especially in a virtual world. If you have not explored how Vidyard can help you advance your business, definitely make sure to look into it. And lastly, Motion. They are a podcasting service for scrappy startups and anybody else who is looking to get into the podcast game. We use them and they are a lifesaver. So if you have not heard of Motion, go over, check them out at motion.io and see what you can do with your show. And now let's get into the content of the day. I am so excited for our guest. We have Katie Ivy, who has an incredible record of leadership and tech skills from her experience at Insight Pool as a vice president of sales to director of sales at Marketo to now the RVP of sales for the national team at Demandbase. You have climbed the ladder and I imagine that your journey has taken many a twists and turns. So to kick us off, welcome and thank you for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit just about you, about your professional journey, how you wound up where you are. Tell us your story. Sure. I feel like that question can take so many different shapes and lengths, I guess, but I'll try to give you the short version. I definitely, like many, many salespeople and sales leaders, I certainly consider myself an accidental salesperson. It certainly wasn't what I studied in college or had any real ambition to become when I grew up, I guess. I stumbled into an interview with a company called Meltwater. I think it was three or four weeks before I was graduating for my undergrad. I studied political science, international affairs, thought I would end up back overseas because I I'd traveled a ton actually before I went to college and lived in Australia and, and had just some really great adventures pre-college. So that was what I thought the journey would look like ended up working for an incredible, very international company, which is what drew me to them. And in an entry level sales job, making a ton of cold calls, doing things that were very, very far outside of my comfort zone. Turned out I really liked business, which I did not know until that point. And I was I'll say okay at sales. I wasn't one of those people that like hit the phones and was just sort of off to the races and a natural from day one. What I was a natural at pretty early, uh, and part of that was because of the time that I spent between high school and college, was I, I loved leading teams. Like from day one, I loved coaching, I loved mentoring, I loved creating culture, working with other people. So the sales management muscle came pretty naturally to me. Uh, I had to work a little bit harder, I think, to build the sales acumen and that piece. But I've pretty much been in, in sales and then primarily sales leadership positions really since the second year of my career and so incredibly grateful. 
That's unique. And when you say you just, you knew that you wanted to be a leader, you knew that your passion was there. It sounds like you realized that you wanted that before you were actually in the role. What helped you identify that you wanted to be a leader? It's a good question. I think I was probably a little bit more self-aware than folks typically are at that stage in their career. And that's just because I had taken almost five full years before I actually went to college. So I'd grown up a little bit, traveled a lot. I'd done some public speaking. I'd done some fundraising. And I had led teams during that season. And I mean, it was a very different scenario. I was like, leading treks through like jungles and carrying medical supplies and going to refugee camps and things that 18, 19, 20 year old kids don't typically get exposed to. And just cultivating a ton of passion, I think, for the world around me and people around me. And so when I ended up in a professional setting, obviously, a couple of years later, I just had a lot of interest in other people. And I felt like I had some potential to figure out how to bring out the best in other people, especially really young salespeople that were just getting into kind of that first job right out of college. So that was just the piece that, I mean, I got put in a team lead role, I think three months in and I don't know, floundered through aspects of it, did well in other aspects and figured it out along the way, which I think is what a lot of a lot of us do throughout many stages of our careers, not always <laughs> just at the beginning. I mean... Right. It's like the first time you do anything, it's pretty awkward. But I have to imagine that the experiences that you went through and your natural inclination to do something that so many people haven't done really led into your leadership style and how you lead a team. And that's, that's actually the topic of the day is this idea of what makes a phenomenal leader and what makes a bad leader. And can you train someone into being a good leader? Or is that something that is naturally ingrained? So like what we're going to dive into today is just this idea behind what does it mean to be a great leader and how do you get there? And then also what does bad leadership look like? And kind of having that uncomfortable conversation because I think most people have seen it and experienced it and it's hard to identify. So starting with you, being able to identify that you want to be a leader, how did your experiences prior to that, that you went through kind of lend itself to develop your leadership style? Yeah, I think, and again, so much of the experiences that really shaped me were those very young years of like 17 to 22 and some of the things that I was thrown into. And I think one of the big things I learned during that season is that people can, I'll, I'll take a little Glennon Doyle quote, but people can do really hard things. Like we can do things that maybe are far outside of the scope of what we think we're capable of. And we can thrive in scenarios that might feel very awkward or very unknown to us. So I think I just developed a little bit of a sense of bravery at a pretty young age. And then, I mean, if you ask me one thing that I feel like really defines at least who I want to be as a leader, and I think we all pivot through many different sections of feeling like we're really thriving and then other times where we're making a ton of mistakes and certainly not always the best version of the leader that we want to be. But I certainly strive to be someone that helps other people identify what their innate superpowers or strengths really are, and then figure out how do we multiply those and really help them become very confident in those areas. So I think even from my earliest experiences leading teams, that's always what I was looking for or trying to build muscles around is how do I help other people figure out what they're great at. And then if you can put together teams where there are complementary strengths and people are working together and people genuinely like each other, then I think you're set up for a ton of success collectively. I would be remiss if I didn't dig in further when you're talking about sort of those the formidable years, the 17 to 21, where it is such a time of extreme growth. Even when I reflect on myself at that time, you don't realize how much those years will contribute to the person you're going to be. 
And you talked about this theme of bravery. And I think leadership and bravery often are hand in hand. It's a scary thing to have to do. And what was one or maybe more than one of those experiences that you were thrown into as an adolescent, as a young person that gave you the bravery and the courage to do what you do now? It's always going to anchor back to travel or really weird trips. There was a time when I was in Thailand leading a group of, I think there were 16 of us. And I had one other team lead with me, but I had to figure out, we had very limited amount of money and we had to live there for six weeks. And we had some different sponsors and folks on the ground, but like, you had to figure things out that I had certainly never put together from a budget perspective and transportation. And how do we get from one village to another and where do we find people that speak English? Because none of us spoke Thai. And so there was just a lot of that. And you and I don't know each other that well, but I'm not particularly operationally minded. Like detail oriented is not a strength that I bring to the table. So I'm having to try to sit down with basically very you know, old school versions of spreadsheets and figure some of that stuff out and do the math and make sure we could get where we needed to go and have enough dollars to survive and feed each other. There were scenarios like that that I think certainly put me in those uncomfortable, requiring bravery sort of scenarios and taught me again, I can do tough stuff and I may not be the smartest person in the room always, but I'm usually smart enough to figure it out if I have to. I mean, the strategy that is born from something like that, once again, you don't realize how that's going to help you. But when you're sitting and you're trying to figure out quotas or comp plans or your hiring plan, and then you think back to that and you're like, you know, <laughs> I, I can, can do this. I can do this because I've done that. And so I'm hearing some themes here that kind of tie back to sort of when you say like, what does it mean to be a leader? I'm hearing bravery. I'm hearing strategy. I'm hearing ability to accept the unknown. I'm hearing low ego. There's a lot of these themes that are required because what I also think is amazing is especially at your level, there's clearly a lot that you're an expert on, like very, very clearly. And yet while talking about it, you're so open about saying, I know I'm not great at this. I know I'm not great at this, but it's not about being good at everything, right? Like it's not about I'm great at everything. It's I know where I'm not great and I know how to make sure that we get there regardless. Yeah. So it's not the pursuit of perfection. Yeah. The more that we build that within ourselves, and, and so much of it is just literally sitting and like being willing to sit in that place of self-awareness and figuring some of those things out. I think it then creates space for people around us to then amplify their strengths and be allowed to be great at the things that they're great at and acknowledge the areas where they're not as strong, which I think is super important at all levels of leadership. I think that low level of self-awareness or the inability to admit when you're not perfect or not the best, I think that is potentially one of the core qualities that leads to a bad manager or a bad leader. Yeah. What would you say are some of the other qualities that lead to an ineffective leader? Much of it, I think, stems from insecurity, but it typically manifests itself in things like micromanagement, a lack of trust, needing to take up all the space in the room, as opposed to being willing to be quiet and let other people share, discuss, dissect, ask questions, add to the conversation. A lot of times it projects itself as a ton of ego, I think. And many of us have been there. I certainly have been there. And then I've certainly worked with others that are. But when you dig in deeper, I think generally it comes out of a place of either insecurity or imposter syndrome, but just the, the feeling that, hey, I need to be big and take up a bunch of space because I actually don't feel so good about what it is that I bring to the table. Do you, that's so interesting. Do you think that that's the individuals, I hate to say the word fault, but like who owns that? Is that a business? 
Is that a cultural thing at a company of making your leaders feel insecure enough that they have to project in that way? Is it an individual attribute? Like where, if you see that this is a problem at your organization, you have ineffective leaders, you have high ego leaders, you have leaders that are letting fraud syndrome drive them. How do you, do you fix it with the person or do you fix it with the company? I think it has to be both. And to answer your first question, it can certainly be an organizational structure challenge, but it can also be an individual personal challenge. I think all of us as leaders at all different levels have to take ownership for one, the fact that we're human and super flawed, and we're going to have areas and times where we're not operating at the best versions of ourselves. And we need people around us that have the right to actually tell us that and speak into even something as simple as how I led a meeting or how I communicated a specific thing that we're rolling out because I need people to be able to tell me, hey, this could have gone better. Or hey, just so you know, some of how that was perceived might not have landed exactly in line with your intention, things like that. But it can absolutely be something that's coming from all levels. I've been grateful to work for some incredible leaders and at some pretty incredible companies. But I've heard a lot of horror stories of people that operate in just really cryptic, particularly sales cultures and sales environments that are just really, really unhealthy. And I mean, if you've got multiple leaders that are operating in that very ego-driven, maniacal, not making space, not creating trust, then it's got to be about more than just the individual in that scenario, in my opinion. Let's go one level deeper with that, because I think we're going to flip it and we're going to talk about like, what is great leadership, which I think oftentimes you think you know the answer to that. And then when you break it down, you're like, it's not what I thought that it was. Some of those examples of leadership that you've seen in terms of poor culture and poor behaviors, is there a story or a theme behind that of what you've seen or a way to identify it? I mean, I don't think it's anything that's really rocket science, at least based on the few examples that I have from personal experience. So much of it comes down to how we make other people feel or how leaders make other people feel. I mean, something as simple as positive feedback versus negative feedback. And I'm all for tons of feedback. And I think at least people that have worked for me, like they're desperate to figure out how do they get better? How do they improve? Like, how do they feel like their career trajectory is improving and they're building skills and muscles they didn't have before they worked for me. So I think feedback's a great thing, but don't berate people in front of other people. Like that's pretty simple. But if I've got something really negative that I know might be hurtful on a personal level, I'm going to do that in a one-on-one setting versus in a team meeting or in a forum or back in the old days when we were in offices, these big open spaces, I'm not going to call someone out in a loud public way in front of their peers in a way that might be crippling for them. It doesn't mean I'm not going to poke fun from time to time. Like you build trust and you've got rapport with people. If I've asked you to update your next steps in Salesforce 17 times, and this is the 18th time and it's not done, I might call you out in public in that. And it's all in good fun and we're going to get it done. But the real stuff, like the personal gut level stuff, the negative conversations need to happen behind closed doors or one-on-one, and then look for ways to praise people in public. Look for ways to be extra loud when you share some great feedback or you talk about something incredible that so-and-so just did that might feel insignificant. But I I think just, again, that feels really simple. And most of us learn this, like we're taught it, the first management job we're ever given, but I've seen so many leaders not do that and do it well. And it's really, really crippling. I could not agree with you more. I have seen 
similar things. And I've seen people go one step further where they actually almost celebrate this as a cultural thing where it's like, oh, it's tough love and it, nobody can hide. And I'm going to be that manager that drives you and pushes you. Like everybody wants their moment where they can say like, I'm the tough coach that pushed you and got you where you need to be. And it's like, that's fine, but there's also a way to do that. And I think if you only give people thematically what they need to do as leaders and you don't show them how and why, that's what you wind up with. You wind up with people who think it's okay to just call somebody out on the floor without recognizing how that may make them feel or the impression it's going to give the rest of the team. And so the lack of training around what do we do as leaders? Why do we do it? What is the impact? And then how do you go about doing that? It so often doesn't happen because I found that bad leaders make other bad leaders yeah. and then they follow those badly and it just keeps going, right? Yeah. And you get a company where you're like, how did that person get there? Like, how is that person <laughs> all the way up there? And it's like bad leaders beget bad leaders. Well, and in sales so often, it just, it's this weird cycle of great salespeople get promoted to be leaders and then never taught to be leaders. And maybe they don't actually even want to be leaders. Right. And then they hire more great salespeople that, don't know how to be leaders. And it's just this really awkward, vicious cycle where there's not any real development around how do we get good at this? I mean, frontline sales leaders are the most valuable asset of any business, in my opinion. And we don't invest much into teaching them how to be great at what they do. If we could just keep hitting on that, it's like your frontline leaders will make or break your company. And the problem with ineffective leaders at that level, to your point, is that then leader keeps moving up and up and up and they hire other leaders in their image and then you wind up with a cultural issue. But on top of that, I have heard so many ineffective leaders don't, they don't realize they're ineffective. And the reason they say is because, well, nobody's ever told me, like none of my team has ever complained. My team is performing. No one's ever told me that they don't like what I'm doing. So it must be great. And so it's almost like you have to break down this idea of how do you give feedback and be a great coach? And then how do you also elicit feedback? So like to you, if, if I'm a frontline leader and I want feedback from my team to make sure that I'm effective, in my opinion, you could disagree. I think asking them for their feedback is very dangerous. Just being like, yeah, what do you think of my management style? It's like, that is dangerous. You are in charge of my career and my trajectory. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, <laughs> right? Like your people will tell you what you want to hear. So if you are that frontline manager, you're hungry to learn and you want feedback. How do you get that? So I think it's a combination. There is an element of you need to ask for feedback, but it has to be done in a really tactful way. And it has to build over time and be layered in with some pretty purposeful layers of trust. Like at Demand Base right now, we're doing a training and reading a book called Multipliers, which I read years ago. And it's one of the best books on leadership, I think that's out there. But we're reading it collectively, the entire leadership org, and we're doing monthly discussion groups around the principles and the concepts and multipliers. And the first couple of chapters, there's a whole concept on figuring out what you naturally do that are what they call multiplier tendencies versus those that are diminisher tendencies, like making people better versus making people smaller, essentially. And there's some pointers on how to get your people to tell you some of the positives, the multiplier aspects, but then also some things that you're probably doing most likely unconsciously that could be perceived as diminishing to those around you. And so it doesn't just like land as this quick, hey, give me some feedback on how I'm doing as a leadership leader or on my leadership style. It's, hey, 
we're doing this study together collectively. It's really, really important to our business. One of the things I'm going to ask in our next one-on-one is for some feedback on these two specific topics. I know it might feel really vulnerable, but I would be so grateful if you're willing to share anything in both of these areas. And you kind of, you warm them up, you prep them, you know, you're going to ask the question. I mean, at least me personally, I've gotten some great feedback. I've learned some things about myself and some great feedback of things that I do well. Like it's fostered some really good conversations. So I, I think it is about asking for feedback and making sure that your team knows, hey, I really want to get better as a leader and I want to learn how you're perceiving things and how I can improve, even just how I manage you directly. But it can't be just this one-off conversation because to your point, it feels really scary to give someone that level of control if it's this person dictates my career essentially. Right. I'm hearing another theme erupt here, which is the theme around trust. If your people don't trust you, they're not going to be honest with you. And so I think as a leader, the number one thing you have to make sure that you have from your people in order to be an effective leader is their trust. They have to trust you. Because if you can have that conversation, which I think, by the way, if you're listening to that, rewind it back, because the way that you phrased that was so open and collective spirited that I think it helps people to feel disarmed. But if you're looking to build that trust and you don't have it, what do you do as a leader when you know your people don't trust you or you're insecure about it? Yeah, that's a hard one. I think it depends on how long you've been in the role or been working with those individuals. When it's new folks that are joining your team or if you're moving into a new role or taking over a new team or a new you know job altogether, it starts with those first couple of one-on-one conversations. One, being willing to share your story. So I always talk about my background. I talk about my family. Like I share some nuggets of who I am. I'm also pretty open with, as far as what I'm aware around is I'm really good at these things and I have some gaps in these areas. So I try to be very open and transparent about the things that I'm, I think that I'm good at and not so good at early on. And then I ask a lot of questions and make it a goal the first couple of weeks that I'm managing someone new to try to get to know them on the human level before I get to know them on the job or the professional level. And everybody's comfort level is different. Not everybody wants to be best friends with their boss or best friends with the people that they work with. And that's totally fine. I've managed a lot of folks that are relatively young. And quite often, they do want to be best friends with their boss. So they want to share a lot of information. And I love that. And there's always going to be different personality styles. But again, back in the old days, we would also go out for dinner and we would have drinks and we would socialize and get to know each other both one-on-one as well as in a team setting. And I would focus on building that friendship layer. I, I think people have to feel like they can trust you, but they also have to feel like you like them. Like at least on some level, there has to be this sense of like, I genuinely like and admire who you are as a human being. And I'm excited to work with you. And I feel like it all kind of stems out of that level of mutual respect and trust. Oh my gosh. The idea of, I think everybody says like, I don't care if I'm liked, but it's like, yes, you do. Yes, like you as do. a human be- yes, you do. Maybe in a different way, but I think too, that's some of that tough exterior that leaders think, like leaders think they have to say that. They think they have to say, I don't care if I'm liked. And the reality is that you do. You just have to figure out what that means for you. And speaking just in terms of this last year and what everybody has been through, I think the people who are going to be impacted from a relationship standpoint so much are leaders and their ability to connect with their people if they've never met them. Do you think that you hit a point with a manager 
direct report level where you miss the opportunity to build a personal relationship. Because some people, it's been a year of, I only know you because we have a Zoom meeting once a week and you're in my team meeting once a week and then we're slacking all week long. And now it's a year later. Like, can you go back and build that? It's hard. I have five folks on my team right now that I've never met in person, both at the AE and the leadership level. And I've tried some different tactics to make sure that we're still building that level of rapport and connection and making sure that I'm still getting to know them on the human level. And I think that we've built that, I mean, especially with the, the gal that's joined my team that's a frontline leader. I would consider her a friend. I'm excited to meet her in person, hopefully soon, fingers crossed. So I think as long as you've made an effort to invest in a personal level at some capacity, even if it is just over Zoom and Slack and all the different channels that we live in today, then no, I don't think it's like this ship has sailed. I think depending on the culture of your team and your organization, if it is very impersonal and it is just, hey, we have a one-on-one once a week and we're talking about nothing but deals and we're on Slack talking about it. If your only relationship has been deals or forecast, then yeah, it's, it's going to be hard to then somehow backtrack and build anything outside of that, I think. Yeah. I mean, it almost feels like when you get back in person, there's going to be a level of awkwardness there that you may want to just call out. You know, like you might want to be like, this is awkward, (laughs) but I want to get to know you and and like, let's start over. You know, do you feel like if you're in that position, because there are certain types of people where they have not been able to function as they normally would, especially as a leader in this environment. And it's, it's nobody's fault. But would you recommend that person if they get back in, in front of somebody to just say, like, let's start over. I want to build a better relationship with you. Let's move. F-. Like, do you call it out? You just be honest about it? Oh, 100%. We've also all kind of forgotten how to, like, interact with human beings in general. You know, like, if we're both vaccinated, do we shake hands? Do we hug? Do we not touch? Do we stay six feet? Like, yeah, it's just very, very awkward. There's going to be a lot of relearning, I think, at the society level. And so, yes, let's just call it out. Like, hey, like we're going to figure this thing out now. And the dynamic's going to, even for people that we worked with in person a year and a half ago, we're going to have to reach, I mean, half of my team has moved. Nobody lives in the same place anymore. Like, we won't go back to the exact same in-office dynamics that we had before. And so we're going to have to just re-explore what is great look like in the next phase. It's not just going back to what it was before. Yeah. What does great look like now? I love that. Like embrace the fact that it's going to be different and that's okay. That's okay. And there's probably going to be a lot of moments where people are in conference rooms together for the first time and somebody inevitably coughs or sneezes and everyone stops. And like, you know, there's going to be moments of that. Yes. It's allergies. It's allergies. I promise. I swear to God. I don't know. I'm not. It's fine. I'm the vaccine. It's cool. So thinking about some of the strongest leaders that you have ever been exposed to, maybe even people that you emulate outside of the obvious, because I think there are the obvious like top three that come to mind of like, this is what makes a great leader, right? It's a great interview question. Like what makes a great leader? And you're like, here they are outside of that list of things. What is some stuff that you can identify that you've seen in not just good, but great leaders, the best? Yeah. And that kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions is, can you teach someone to be a leader or is it just this innate thing? And I think it's a combination of both. There are certainly skills that can be taught and a lot of things that we can proactively learn to become better. But to your point, true greatness from a leadership perspective, there's something that's hard to quantify. Like it's hard to put your finger on exactly what is it. So Actually, in person a few nights ago, I got to go hang out with a guy that I used to work for at Marketo that was our CRO and is now the CRO at a company that my husband works for. And it was just this magical reunion because I hadn't seen him in a long time. But he's one of those people that to me just emulates great leadership. 
And there's just this slightly magical quality that he brings out in people around him. And some of it's just the energy that he tells stories with and how invested he is in every company that he's worked for. But he also has really interesting ways of simplifying what feel like big concepts and making them digestible for other people. And he's very good at picking two or three things that he knows absolutely need to be the theme of that moment or that of that season and just going all in on those themes, but doing it with this sense of warmth and magic and pulling people into the story. And those aren't things that you can like list out in bullet points. I mean, other than being a great communicator and being able to simplify <laughs> hard concepts, I guess. But there's something with the twinkle in his eye when he talks about the thing that matters and why it matters. That's just a little bit different than someone else that could be trained to say the exact same thing. Like when that individual stands up in front of a room and tells the story, people lean in a little bit differently. Like you could put someone else in the same role and they would demand respect and people would pay attention. But people paying attention is very different than like, there's just something in me that like physically leans in and is engaged in the words that are being said. And I want to be part of that story. Like to me, that's great leadership. It sounds like, now I'm like, I have to bullet point it. It sounds like. <laughs> Good luck. Um, it's, yeah, right. Well, it sounds like it is this leader's intent. It is their level of integrity that they have found a way to quantify via their physical and emotional attributes. It sounds like an extreme amount of curiosity, like you build relationships with people via curiosity about who they are. It sounds also like they're a natural storyteller, maybe a little bit of a performer. And people who are open books and who are great at telling their story and other stories and do that because of their integrity and their curiosity and their experience and their low ego, you put those things together, it's a little bit of everything. But to me, it's like, that's an engaging person. Like it comes down to the the best sales reps in the world are the sales reps that are incredible storytellers yep. that are very intuitive. They can pivot really, really quickly. They're engaging. They're excited. It's like, it's, it's that physical sort of energy that almost feels like little lightning bolts. And you see that and you want to emulate it and it draws you in. Yeah. And if you think about all the different things that even we just found a way to list out together, that's so many, like if you wanted to train someone to do that, the impossibility would be because doing that comes from your personality and your communication style and your experiences. Like we talked earlier about this period in your time of big change between the age of 17 and 21, where it shaped who you are. We can't teach somebody that experience. You have to live through it. So the bigger question here is how much do you think your personal experiences impact who you are professionally? Like, are those tied? So absolutely, they're tied. I think that they have a massive impact. The piece that I feel like you can't teach is what you just hit on curiosity or intellectual curiosity. To me, if someone has true intellectual curiosity, which means they are really curious about people, but in my world, they also have to really be curious about business, how businesses function, how businesses make money, what different people care about and do within those organizations. If they're curious on those two aspects of the equation, they can learn anything, they can figure anything out, and they can develop some of those intangible skills that we need great salespeople, great sales leaders, great leaders at all levels to have. If they're not intellectually curious, game over. Mm. That's the main bullet point right there. It's intellectually curious. It is professional empathy, because I think empathy can take you 
only so far, but that it's that professional level of empathy where I am able to gear my superpower toward what I need right now to advance this business agenda, which will also advance your personal agenda and who you are. So it's these buzzwords that people are like, oh, you know, but when you add, when you like drill down to it, we're starting to be able to figure out the intangibles here. See, look, we did, we're making a list. There you go. It's perfect. (laughs) We're making a list. This is great. You can go on your face on that. But no, this has been incredible. And throughout our conversation, I have just been wanting to know more and more about you and what makes you who you are. Because as we're laying out this list, even just talking to you now, and like you said, we don't know each other very well. We know each other better now. I'm seeing some of these qualities in you, which means they came from somewhere. People didn't teach you how to be who you are. It happened to you. So I think this is a great time to get to our rapid reveal section because we need to peel back the layers. We need to figure it out. People are going to want to emulate you. So are you down for the rapid reveal? Let's do it. Okay. We have five questions, ideally 60 seconds or less to answer each. If you go over, it'll be my fault because I'll keep drilling in because... I was going to say the 60 seconds is going to be the problem (laughs) for me, but I will do my best. We're going to do it together. It's okay. I'm here to help you. All right. So number one, let's keep it light. But right now, all of us are thinking about this. What would your ideal vacation look like? So I actually just took it. And it was a trip to the beach with my husband and our six closest, all fully vaccinated friends. And we rented a villa on the beach in Mexico. We didn't socialize with others a ton. So we had our own chef and we literally just spent time on the beach and in a pool and felt like life was sort of normal with some of our favorite people. And it was absolutely magical. Well, you responsibly did what you need to do to feel normal. So I think it's okay that you celebrate that and say, I feel feel like kind of normal. You earned it. It was magic. (laughs) Yes. I'm looking forward to more vacation with friends, hopefully soon. (sighs) I'm going to live vicariously through that. That's beautiful. (laughs) Getting a little bit deeper. Have you ever had imposter syndrome? And if so, when did you first become aware that that's what you were feeling? That's where the insecurity was. Of course. I think I'm convinced that every successful person, probably just about every day has moments of thinking, wait, you think I know the answer to that or am the one that should handle that? So certainly I have plenty of those moments. I would say probably the biggest trigger for me before, not long before COVID, I had started setting some goals and wanting to do more public speaking. And I, I love being on stage. And I think that with some practice, I can be really good at it. But it is terrifying as well. And certainly a big trigger for me. doesn't matter if it's a big room, small room, standing in front of peers and being asked to talk about something to me feels very different than an online setting or podcast or other things that I'm much more comfortable with. So that's probably the biggest trigger when I know because I actually have great, very valuable things to say. I just have to remind myself. All right. I would agree with you. So in those moments where you're like, I have nothing good to say, listen back to this and be like, I have great things to say and things that will help people, which is big. It's one thing to say, I have great things to say. It's another to meaningfully make a difference in somebody else's life, which I think you can also do. Well, thank you. That's nice. Of course. Number three, what is an irrational fear of yours? This one's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I am very claustrophobic. So getting stuck in elevators 
actually my second day on the job at Demand Base, so two and a half years ago, I got stuck in a very small New York elevator that was very full for 45 minutes. So it was like literally my worst nightmare. And I'm with my brand new team and trying not to freak out in front of them. So it was just all layers of challenging for me. So oh my God. yeah, that's probably my biggest. I also hurt myself jumping off a cliff when I was like 19. And so now I have a slightly irrational fear of heights as well. I don't jump off of high things at all. I mean, given these snippets I'm hearing, you and I would have been really good friends in high school. (laughs) (laughs) There would have been some injuries probably, but oh well. For sure. For sure. Speaking of childhood, what is your earliest childhood memory? I have a very clear memory of my great grandmother and she died when I was three. So I must have been two or maybe just turned three, but I can like picture the room that we were in playing. My brother was there and we were like running around in circles at her feet basically. So yeah, I think that's probably the earliest memory that I have of anything. Oh, okay. That was beautiful. All right. And number five, we're going to completely switch it now from something beautiful to when's the last time that you were truly angry and what made you angry? I like this question. Anger is not a common emotion for me. I don't know. It's just, I don't fight with people very often. Even my husband, like we literally do not really fight. Thinking about this, probably the biggest This is definitely a a flip of a much more serious topic. The biggest thing consistently that has made me angry, particularly over the last year plus, is the level of racism that I think rages through our country and the Mm -hmm. absolute unwillingness of white people in particular to address the amounts of unconscious, unconscious bias that we have. Thank you for calling that out, because especially as two people who either are white or at least present white. I certainly don't want to assume any race here, but I could not agree with you more. And I was actually going to say when you were talking about that, you don't feel anger a lot. I was going to say that in terms of emotion, anger is one of the more useless emotions. But then when you said what made you angry, I realized I'm wrong. Anger can be useful if it is generated for the right reasons and then you use it to take action. Yeah. 100%. And so I would say that what has generated a lot of anger for me has been, yes, the institutionalized and overt racism toward multiple races in this last year and the ineffectiveness of people at the helm to be able to change it and just individuals. So thank you for saying something and calling it out and doing something with your anger. I appreciate that. And with that, we are coming up on time. So how can people learn more about you? How can they connect with you? If they want to learn more about demand base and what you do, where can people go to learn and connect with you and learn more about your company? Sure. So demandbase.com got tons of great information. We're we're a B2B marketing platform. I think the best in the world. We do account-based marketing, account-based sales. It's as a sales leader, I'm obsessed with the product and use it all day, every day. So check it out. Would love to hear from you personally as well. Katie Ivy. I'm Katie with a C. So that's usually pretty easy to find if you spell my first name with a C versus a K. I'm all over LinkedIn and Twitter and, or you can find me at katie-ivy.com. Amazing. And I just, I want to Put a pin and draw more attention to the idea behind behind account-based marketing and just what you do, especially given that I'm with Sales Assembly and we have our ear to the ground of the needs of so many B2B tech SaaS companies. ABM is big right now, and the innovation in this space is like nothing I've ever seen before. And knowing that you have this incredible product that can help people advance there, like if you are listening to this and this is a strategy that you want to lean into as a company, like hit Katie up. This is is the time the iron is hot. So 
Love it. With that, (laughs) thank you so much for being a guest on Taking the Lead. This has been a ton of fun. I appreciate everybody for listening. And Katie, thanks again for being with us. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.